great treat from 50 years ago is going to be discussed tonight. Len Furman, the sports time traveler, comes and tells us about the great and remarkable season of the 1973 New York Mets and the remarkable comeback from deep in despair. Len's up in just a moment to tell us all about it. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my friends of sports history. This is Darren Hayes of the Sports Jersey Dispatch Podcast. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your place for all things great in sports history. And boy, do we have a special one for you today. We have our friend Len Furman coming back to talk about one of his favorite baseball teams and one of the most interesting dynamic teams in MLB history, the Mets of New York, 1973. Uh, Len, welcome back to the Pig Pen. Thanks, Darren. Uh, thanks again for having me on your podcast. It's a real honor to be here, especially being from Jersey myself, any podcast with the name Jersey in it is very special <laughs> for me to be on. Uh, before we start, I'd like to take a moment to dedicate my guest appearance here tonight to my wife's father, Anthony Bonney, who passed away over the weekend. Uh, Anthony was a real unsung hero. He's he's literally the only person I've ever known who benefited the lives of tens of millions of people. He worked for several decades for the United States Agency for International Development, and he was personally in charge of overseeing the distribution of medications in poverty-stricken areas around the globe. He actually spent many weeks every year visiting Africa, South America, and the Far East to implement his programs. Uh, Tony, as I called him, he had an amazingly deep, booming voice that would have been perfect for this podcast tonight. Uh, Tony, uh, we're going to miss you forever. I, I also personally owe Tony quite a bit. He he loved reading my articles, and he was one of the people that gave me lots of support and encouragement as I developed the Sports Time Traveler over the past year. So thanks for letting me take that moment. Yeah, uh, if, I, if I could just interject, you know, uh, on behalf of the listeners and myself, uh, you know, we wish our deepest sympathies and, and condolences for you and your family and your wife uh, during these times. So, and thank you for sharing that little bit about Tony and uh, what he did for the world and uh, for you personally. So, so thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, he was really an amazing person. Uh, I'd like to just take another moment to explain to your audience what is the Sports Time Traveler? So it's a newsletter and podcast I developed last year. The premise is that I travel back in time virtually via systematically reading newspaper archives each day exactly 50 years ago. And then I come back to the present and write stories as though I'm delivering a firsthand account. And I only post articles or podcasts when there's something so exciting or so compelling, I just have to share it. So that's that's what the sports time traveler is. 
And, and folks, you may have uh, seen this name popping up. Not only was he on Pigskin Dispatch just a couple of weeks ago uh, talking about a great Colgate uh, football team from 1932, but uh, Len has graciously allowed us to share part of his feed in our daily newsletter. So you probably see that in, in the feed of uh, some of our friends that have some posts on there. And I've been following these Mets as you've been posting them, and I'm sure a lot of the audience has. So we're really excited to hear what you have to say about them. Yeah, so... One of the main genesis of the sports time traveler was my my love for the New York Mets. Now I cover I cover all sports, I cover all different stories, but I have a special focus right now on the New York Mets because exactly 50 years ago, they were they were in last place in the National League East and looking like they were going nowhere. And, and here's a spoiler alert uh, for everybody: if you don't want to know. What happened? Uh, I'm going to let you know right now. This is the spoiler alert. But they they are going to go on an absolutely unbelievable run from last place in the National League East to first place. And then they're going to play the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine, uh, one of the great teams of the 1970s. And they're going to beat them and win the National League pennant. And then they're going to go uh, all the way to the World Series against the Oakland A's. I'm I'm going to leave it off there and not tell you, not tell the audience what happens further. But, but I I was a nine year old boy back in the summer of 1973, and I, I was one of those kids that baseball and the New York Mets just meant everything to me. And the players in the New York Mets, they they were my heroes, and I was following the Mets every day. And I remember the doldrums of the summer of 1973. They from from the time school let out. In, near the end of June until here we are, it's August 7th. That whole, this whole summer, they're, they're in last place and it just doesn't look like they're going anywhere. And then at some point they're going to take off. Now, the, the interesting thing for me is, again, the genesis of the sports time traveler was I wanted to relive this because this was really like a foundational experience for me growing up to see this happen. But I don't remember how exactly how it happened. I just remember the arc of the story. So I'm so excited as this is, we're getting to this point now where the Mets are going to, at some point, they're going to start climbing out of last place. In fact, every day that I'm I'm reading the newspaper archives, I'm still stunned that they're still in last place. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to follow this day by day over the next eight weeks as we run through the end of the season. And then again, share it with my audience. Uh, you can both read my articles and listen to my articles. Um, and I, I'm not going to be writing every day, but I'm going to be writing my promise to my readers is I only write when there's a story so exciting that I just have to share it with you. But for the diehard Mets fans and the people who really want to know every day, just this week I've started uh, on my website, uh, which is uh, separate from where my articles are posted. My articles are posted in Substack. And I have a website that's just a pointer to get there. It's it's very simple, thesportstimetraveler.com. So if you go to my website, you'll find the link to get to my articles. But now you'll also see a new page called 1973 Mets Updates. And there, in days I don't uh, run articles, I post a short update on what happened uh, exactly 50 years ago to the, to the Mets. Because I know some people... Uh, want to get want to see every day what's going on and some don't want to get overwhelmed by too many articles about the new york mets yeah len uh, before before we get too much into the season why don't we give a, a sort of that fifty thousand foot view of 
who the Mets are in 1973. I mean, there's some very recognizable names, including uh, the manager of the Mets. And maybe you could share some of that with the, the listeners. Yeah. So the manager is Hall of Fame catcher Yogi Berra, who uh, I think he was on about 12 pennant winning teams with the Yankees from 1949 through 1964. And uh, so he's the manager of the team. And they have some really interesting personnel uh, in 19, in the spring of 1972, when Willie Mays was 40 years old, he was playing on the San Francisco Giants. The New York Mets uh, made a deal to bring Willie back to New York to finish his career. Uh, baseball fans probably know Willie Mays started his career playing for the New York Giants in the 50s. And then he moved to San Francisco when the Giants went to San Francisco. And he played there from 1958 till early 1972. And then uh, Joan Payson, the owner of the Mets, uh, had always coveted Willie Mays. She was a big Willie Mays fan going back to the beginning of his career. And she was able to pull off this deal to bring him back so he could finish his career in New York. And so so the Mets have Willie Mays. And I remember as a nine-year-old kid again, it was kind of surreal for me to have this legend on our team. Uh, you know, we, we didn't have the, the big name uh, hitters. Uh, we did, you know, the, the big name hitters back then were people like Willie Stargell, Willie McCovey, Hank Aaron, Billy Williams, Pete Rose, Joe Torrey. We didn't have any of those guys. And so uh, and even though Willie Mays was at the end of his career, he wasn't a, a power hitter anymore. It was it was kind of surreal uh, to have Willie Mays on our team. And one of the things I've been doing uh, over this summer in the Sports Time Traveler is trying to um, redefine the narrative around Willie Mays's last season because he took a lot of flack that season. There had been uh, a nationally uh, syndicated article back on May 10th, 1973, um, that said in the headline, it said something like Willie Mays is washed up. I mean, that's that's really, you know, a real dig. And, uh, and yet the fact of the matter is Willie Mays actually had the best spring training of his entire career in 1973 this was something that just stunned me as i was following the mets i've been following them day by day since spring training and uh, he actually batted 350 in spring training led the team in home runs it was it was uh in very interestingly it was the first time and the only time he ever played a spring training in florida because the giants always had their spring training in arizona even when they were the new york giants they played in arizona so something about being in florida and that hot humid weather just agreed with him and then he goes up north in april and you know in new york in april as you know it, it's cold mm -hmm. and so he got and he got off to a really poor horrific start to the season and then he got hurt and he was batting 095 i mean that's just mm -hmm. off the charts low as late as June 10th, but then he goes through a resurgence. And this seems to have gone kind of gone unnoticed, probably because if you just looked at his batting average day to day, it was climbing up through the hundreds and it got up into the low two hundreds. And nobody thinks when you're batting 220 that you're having a good season. But if you throw out the point where he it was cold and he was injured, and if you just look from the middle of June here till the middle, uh, almost the middle of August, he's batting very respectably, almost 300. And then he has a, a few games where he hits game-winning hits, hits very important home runs. So actually, Willie Mays, in the middle of the summer of 1973, is uh, contributing 
uh, very strongly to the team. And in fact, he has one game in Atlanta uh, that I wrote an article about that was uh, really interesting. I titled it uh, Willie Mays Say Hey, New York Never Saw This. There was a game on a Monday night in the middle of July, 1973, where uh, in those days, it was uh, on a Monday night, the only game that was allowed to be on television anywhere in the country was the NBC Monday night game of the week. And the Monday night game of the week that week did not involve the Mets. So the Mets are playing in Atlanta and the game is not on television, not in New York, not in Atlanta, nowhere. And less than 10,000 fans come to the stadium. And so they, so almost nobody gets to see Willie Mays have one of the greatest plays uh, in in his uh, in his entire career, a lot of baseball fans will remember Willie Mays became mega famous, became the the legend he is when he made what was called the catch in the 1954 mm. World Series, where he he caught a drive where he uh, it was uh, it was he played in the Polo Grounds that had almost a 500 foot center field in in 1954. It's kind of hard to imagine, and mm-hmm. there was a, a batter for the Cleveland Indians uh, hit a long drive and. Uh, Mays, long high drive. Willie Mays turned around with his back to the infield and ran all the, almost all the way back to the 500-foot wall and, and caught the ball while he's got his back to the infield. It was absolutely stunning. Well, he does almost the exact same thing in Atlanta, except Atlanta in July 1973 didn't have a 500-foot fence. They had a 400-foot fence. <laughs> and he runs smack into the fence and he gets knocked down and, and, he, and the ball pops out. And the batter goes for an inside the park home run. But he did catch the ball. He caught the ball. It was stunning. And the newspaper accounts at the time, both in Atlanta and New York, talk about how unbelievable it was. And yet yet in Atlanta and New York, there were no pictures. There were no pictures of this. So I was so intrigued by this that I and this is one of the interesting things I do. I'll, I'll search 30, 40 newspapers trying to find angles, different angles on a game. And mm-hmm. I was so excited when in the Tampa Times, I found pictures and not just one picture, but a four picture spread of this catch in Atlanta that looked just like the famous catch from the 1954 World Series. So that 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 was one of that that kind of discovery. I called it like a bit of sports travel, time travel archaeology, because <laughs> I discovered these pictures that nobody in New York ever saw. And uh, and so I put them in my article and I was just so excited to see that. But that's very, so very, very cool. Now, now, would you say in, in your research, you know, with, uh, you know, Willie Mays, uh, you know, who's now the probably the say, hey, adult at this point, he's not say hey kid anymore at this age of 40. Would you say that his sort of resurgence during the season uh, was a parallel to what the Mets were doing? You know, not they, really. No, <laughs> not, no? Okay. not really. Well, he's having this resurgence. The team is still in the doldrums, and uh, and and they still are right now. So right now, as I mentioned, uh, since since near the end of June, in my framework at the time was that's when school let out in New Jersey. They they sunk into last place. They're still in last place now. So right right now, as we talk, they're forty eight and sixty, eleven and a half games uh, behind the St. Louis Cardinals. The New York Times has just about written uh, the Mets off. So so even though he's having a resurgence. The rest of the team is still struggling. Now, uh, the one player who is not struggling is their their franchise player, Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver was one of the great starting pitchers of the 1970s. He was a member of the 1969 Miracle Mets, and Seaver's having an outstanding season. 
And one of the striking statistics I, I came across um, when I, I actually did a, a little mid-season grades for the Mets players when we got to the All-Star break, which was about uh, 10 days ago. And at that time, Tom Seaver was the only player that I saw fit to give a grade of an A to. Uh, and, and here was a, a telling statistic. Seaver, when he starts, uh, in the first 21 games that he started in 1973, the Mets were 13 and eight. When he didn't start, they were 29 and 43. Hmm. So they're a pretty good team when he starts. They're terrible when he doesn't start. So Seaver's clearly the MVP of the team. He's got a 2.02 ERA at that point. Actually, now it's down to 1.97. Uh, when I say now, I mean, I mean here in the first week of August, mm -hmm. uh, 1973. And, um, and so, you know, he, he is clearly uh, their star. He's the one player on the team that legitimately made it to the all-star game. Seaver was at the all-star game. And then Willie Mays was actually uh, placed on the team by the commissioner because people just wanted to see Willie Mays, even though he hadn't really earned uh, a spot on the all-star team. No, nobody had a problem with that. Now, now was uh, it announced like before that season, that it would be his final season or was it, just, it, I, I, I don't think it was announced, but it was clear. Um, okay. There was, so this, there was this even, sort of his farewell tour. So people, that's maybe why the commissioner they, did that. They didn't really have a farewell tour, but it was clear uh, when he, when he got into spring training, a lot of people were saying uh, that he wasn't even sure uh, if he was going to play. Uh, he was going to see how he was doing in spring training and then make a decision. Well, then he had that fantastic spring training. So, so he continued on. Um, but, you know, when, when he was, you know, batting, Batting in the low 200s, it, it was pretty clear this was going to be, and he's 42 years old. It was pretty clear this was going to be his last season. Uh, now, now some of the other players on the Mets um, that at that time in right field they had Rusty Staub. Now, Rusty Staub was actually a pretty solid player. He he was in the middle of his career. He'd had some some pretty strong seasons, but he had gotten hurt uh, the year before and had barely played, and then he got off to a terrible start in 1973 but by this time in 1973 stops really starting to come around and i gave him a grade of a b they also had a really solid second baseman in felix Mion. he came over in a great trade with the atlanta braves in the offseason before 73 and Mion was also heating up now he batted 386 in july uh at first base that's they had, pretty good <laughs> yeah that's really good at first base they had john milner milner was third in the rookie of the year voting the year before uh hitting 17 home runs now he's got 19 home runs so he's he, he's their power hitter and he's pretty solid at first at shortstop they've got bud harrelson he's one of the great defensive shortstops uh in the national league at the time but the problem is harrelson's been hurt a lot and he's he's another one who likes Seaver. Uh, when he plays for the mets there they were uh, at this point in the season when he was playing for the mets they were at least 500. They were 30 and 30. When he when he wasn't playing and he was out a good portion of this season, they were 12 and 21. And and at this point, he's still out. He actually fractured his sternum, and he's going to miss uh, at least two more weeks. Uh, they also have uh, another starting pitcher who last year looked like he could be almost as good as Seaver. John Matlack actually won the Rookie of the Year award in 1972. So Mets the Mets had the first and third. Uh, leading vote getters in the Rookie of the Year award last season in 1972, but Matlack gets off to a terrible start, uh, like many Mets players in 1973. And at this point, he's starting 
to come around. Uh, notably not playing well at all uh, uh, at this point is Jerry Kuzman. Kuzman, uh, known as Kuz by the Mets fans, had been the solid number two starter on the Mets 1969 uh, Miracle Team. He won two games in the 1969 World Series, but he is pitching uh, terribly at this point in 1973, and they, they really need him to come around. And one more player I want to mention, um, because he's going to be instrumental in the turnaround, is relief pitcher Tug McGraw. Now, Tug McGraw, uh, from 1969 through 1972, uh, might just have been the best relief pitcher in the National League. But in 1973, there is something wrong with Tug McGraw. Uh, he, his ERA, when I did the midseason grades a couple of weeks ago, in, in July 1973, was 6, 6.17. And he had mm. blown more saves and lost. Uh, he had he had more blown saves and losses than saves. So he is uh, really pitching poorly. That that's a lot of late inning runs you're giving up there. <laughs> Six ERA. But, but Tug McGraw is going to feature very prominently in the Mets turnaround, which is going to start happening at some point. I don't know when, but it's going to. <laughs> Every day, as I said, every day I look in the newspaper, they're stolen last. I'm scratching my head, like, how does this happen? And uh, I, I last week I ran an article uh, that I called uh, "The Pennant Races Begin." When I ran, I ran the article on August first because that's like really for for true baseball enthusiasts, August first is really the traditional date when when you really start focusing on the pennant races. And so I looked at where were some of the teams that prior to 1973, the teams who had made great comebacks, where were they? at this point and none of them were near where the Mets are uh, at this point in 1973 that the giants in 1951 were in second place nine and a half games behind the dodgers that's the team that um if you recall the bobby thompson home run and the the frantic radio call the giants win the pennant the giants win the pennant that was that giants team in 1951 but they weren't in last place. They were in second place. And uh, if you go back further, there was the 1914 Braves. They were they were known as the Miracle Braves. And they had just a 500 record on August 1st. They were in fourth place and they came back and won the pennant. But again, they were not 12 games under and in last place. So as far as I can tell, there was there was no precedent for what the Mets are about to do in 1973. And that, that's what's, that's one of the things that's going to make this really exciting following this team over the next eight weeks. Yeah, I'll, I'll bet. And maybe I should ask this question near the beginning of, of this uh, little lecture we're getting here on the Mets, but what were the expectations coming into the 73 season? How, how were the Mets in 72? Uh, were they like on the upswing or, you know, what kind of yeah, team that, were they expecting? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, so you kind of you got to kind of go back just a little bit further. They so they won the World Series in 1969. That was a true miracle because the history of this team was they were a franchise team, uh, franchise expansion team in 1962. From 62 to 68, they were the laughing stock of baseball. They I think they had the worst worst record in history over that seven year period. And then they win the World Series in 1969. I mean that's a true miracle. They won 100 games. It wasn't like this year's team. They weren't in last in the middle of the season. They were a, a solid team all season, had a strong finish, win the World Series. So the expectations when you're in New York, if you win the World Series, you're going to do it again. 
1970, 71, and 72, they had, they're okay. They, they, they're over 500. They win 82 or 83 games each year, but they don't come close to winning the division or, or really contending. Now, going into 1973, there, there was some hope for them because, again, they'd had two good rookies in 72. They had Tom Seaver, Tug McGraw. Um, they, they were hoping that Rusty Staub would come back from injury and be, you know, be a real solid cleanup batter. So they did have some hope there. And, but, and, and they actually started out well. They actually uh, won 12 of their first 20 games. And then they go into this malaise and, uh, and, and have lots of injuries. Uh, Cleon Jones, one of the heroes of 1969, misses a, a large portion of the season. Jerry Grody, the starting catcher, has missed a large portion of the season. I already mentioned Harrelson's been in and out. Uh, John Matlack, one of the problems he had early in the season was he got struck on the forehead by a, a batted ball in, in uh, May and actually fractured his skull. So he came back only 12 days later, but he wasn't pitching very well until July. So they had a lot of problems with injuries. And one of the really interesting things I found, again, this is kind of this sports time travel archaeology, was I actually found an article written uh, of all places uh, in um, Rock Hill, South Carolina, by a sports writer there. And he said, uh, in middle of July, you know, the Mets are starting to have some of their regulars come back that were injured. If they can have the whole team healthy, I think they can make a run at the division. <laughs> <laughs> that That is just mind boggling that he actually said that. Uh, and, and of all places in Rock Hill, South Carolina, you wouldn't even think they're following the New York Mets there. Yeah. So, yeah. so yes, the uh, to answer to your question, the expectations were positive going into the season, but they quickly slid downhill. And by this time, uh, nobody except that one guy in Rock Hill, South Carolina, <laughs> thinks they can do anything. Now, you know, you're talking about quotes. It made me uh, think about when I was preparing for this, and I knew Yogi Bear is involved in this. And, of course, Yogi Bear, not only for his fine managerial skills and, and playing skills on the field, but he is a great quote and always has something <laughs> entertaining to say. Now, for this it's probably later on than the beginning of August when he says this, but he made a quote in that 73 season says, you're not out of it until it's mathematical. That's <laughs> just <laughs> typical Yogi Bear and always a good, good chuckle when that, when you have him say something. Yeah. He, he had some great ones. One of my favorite ones is the game is something like the game is 90% mental and the other 50% is physical. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the listeners and I were all uh, taking our shoes off and everything, trying to count up those percentage points right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, but it, what I it must have been really inspiring uh, for the the Mets that year, not only having a you know greats like Willie Mays and Yogi Berra, uh, you know Seaver and, and Tug McGraw, people that have experienced winning both on the Mets and, and with other franchises in Major League Baseball. But I believe uh, 69 was also pretty magical for the other team that played in Shea Stadium that year. Because wasn't it the same year that uh, the Jets won Super Bowl three? Yeah, so the Jets it? won Super Bowl three in January of 69. So they, it was it was for the for football it was the 1968 season but yes they were playing in Shea Stadium 
And it actually, uh, the Jets actually began a really incredible time for New York sports where the Jets win the Super Bowl in 69, uh, at the beginning of 69. The Mets win the World Series in 69. And then the Knicks uh, in the 1969-70 season win the NBA championship, with they, which they wrapped up in April in 1973. So uh, really uh, unbelievable winning in football, baseball, and basketball in a in a very short span of time. Yeah, the only thing could have been better is maybe if the Nets did it, so they have the three rhyming uh, teams all winning that year. So the next, but well, when you when you bring up the Nets, I I do want to mention something interesting. So after uh, after this nineteen seventy three season ends, I want to tell you about a couple of projects that I'm going to be working on. Who who what teams am I going to be following closely? And um, one of them is going to be in 19 in the spring of 1974 is going to be the New York Nets in the ABA, because this is going to be the first season that Julius Irving, Dr. J, is playing okay. for the Nets. And, and that's going to be a real magical season. I, I don't want to give it away, but that's going to be a real magical season for the New York Nets. And I don't know much about that at all, because I was still a, I was a Knicks fan at that time. I became a Nets fan when they moved to New Jersey and became the New Jersey Nets in the NBA, but that's not till 1977. So in 1974, I wasn't really following that. And that's really going to be a great story. The other thing I want to mention for all of your football fans is that, uh, as, as you know, we lost Jim Brown uh, a few months ago. And when I, when Jim passed away, I thought there's no better way I can honor Jim Brown than to go back in time exactly 60 years this fall and follow his best season in the NFL in 1963. And, and that kind of really fits uh, what I do in the sports time traveler, because I said I go back exactly 50 years, but I'll also go back exactly 60, 70, 80, 90, or 100 years. I, I will only go back those exact decades. Um, and so I'm going to go back in time and follow week by week his, his uh, 1963 NFL season, which I know nothing about. And so I'm really looking forward to that. All I know is his total yardage, and I, I won't give that away, but it is, it's going to be his best season. And uh, and and I just do also want to mention this this rule I call as one of the few rules of sports time travel. And I want to explain why I do this. So the reason I go back exactly 50 or exactly 60 or 70 years ago is because what I have found is for me to to me for me to maintain this feeling like I've actually gone back in time i have to do it one day at a time day by day and so uh, when i'm following a team uh I'll, I'll go back exactly 50 or exactly 60 years uh because i i can't uh, I, if i if i go back uh I, I can't follow too many threads so to speak so i can go back 50 60 70 but if i if i can't at the same time go back 51 and 52 and 53. What, what happens is that you just kind of start to lose the feeling. It all gets muddled together. But because I'm going back every 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 day, I'm looking in the newspapers exactly 50 years ago and exactly 60 years ago, I get the feeling. It, it's something hard to describe, but I actually have the feeling of being there because because I, I, I'm, I'm kind of in the flow. I know what's coming. Like, for example, with the Mets, I always know when Seaver's pitching. And it's really exciting knowing, oh, tomorrow, Tom Seaver's pitching, almost as though it's happening now. 
And uh, and that's that's the real excitement that I get out of doing this personally. And I think that excitement is what comes through in my articles in my podcasts. And and so if I if I if I violated that law of sports time travel and started just kind of randomly going back 47 years here and 62 years there, I just wouldn't be able to stay in the moment. And so uh, so I'm going to be going back exactly 60 years to follow Jim Brown. Well, I can I can attest to you as as one of your readers and the listeners that we appreciate you sticking into that niche and staying to that those rules of the the fifty years or so we can follow that team through to the end or this whatever story you're covering. So it's much appreciated and it's uh, less confusing with no distraction uh, being able to follow those teams. So great great job on that. So so you said uh, you were gonna you wanted to say besides the Nets you had some other things that for folks to look forward to on the, the uh, sports time traveler. Well, it was, it was the two things are the, uh, the Cleveland Browns with, with oh, okay. Jim Brown and the fall this fall. And then in the spring, the New York nets with Dr. J. So those are, those are the two uh, projects, so to speak. And, and I just want everybody to know, I won't just be following those things. So I, in, just in the last several weeks, I I've covered lots of other sports. I covered uh, the British open golf tournament uh, in 1973 uh, the Wimbledon tennis tournament uh, in 1973. Uh, so I, I'm I'm covering uh, lots of other things, and I will continue to do that. But I'll have I'll have a larger focus uh, on Jim Brown and uh, in the fall, and and Dr. J and the New York Nets in the spring. And by the way, I'm very open to suggestions from uh, fans. So if anybody has anything they really want me to follow, uh, I'd be happy to do that. And let me give you a great example. The towards the end of last year, I had one of my readers uh, write to me and said, "Hey, in 1973, I'd really like you to follow Secretariat uh, and 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 Secretariat's bid for the Triple Crown in horse racing." And I have to admit, until that fan wrote that to me, I I really hadn't thought about that. I probably would have maybe looked at it. Maybe I would have written an article on the Belmont Stakes. Uh, when he won, when he finished winning the triple crown, but I guarantee I wouldn't have really followed Secretariat and, and written a whole series of articles going back to the race before the Kentucky Derby that he actually loses. I was stunned to find that out. And then all three of his Kentucky Derby races, uh, a triple crown races, and then just this past weekend, I, I followed another race of Secretariat, which also stunned me. Secretariat on uh, August, I think it was August fifth. Or August 4th, 1973, ran his first race after the Belmont Stakes. So the first race after he's won the Triple Crown and solidified his legacy. He runs the Whitney Stakes at Saratoga Racecourse in Saratoga Springs, New York, and he loses. I mm. I, I was just stunned by this because, you know, we think of Secretariat, and, and rightfully so, as maybe the greatest horse in history, and yet Secretariat lost the race before the three triple crown races and lost the first race after the triple crown races. So I thought that was just fascinating. Uh, and this brings up another rule of the, of sports time travel. My other main rule is I don't look ahead. So when I'm uh, so even though I, I already told you kind of the arc of the story of what's going to happen with the Mets, I am not looking ahead. So I don't know uh, day by day. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow until I read the newspaper archives on it. And I, and I am not going to read ahead uh, for the rest of this 1973 season. I, I know what happened because I remember it from when I was nine years old, 50 years ago. Uh, but I don't know what happened day by day. And, that, and that's one of the things that kind of 
makes it so exciting for me. So, so readers, I just want my readers to know uh, if you're reading my, my articles and podcasts, I'm never going to tell you uh, what's going to happen. I'm going to keep it in the moment. And that, that kind of keeps the feeling that you're there. The minute what I found when I was starting to develop this is the minute you start looking ahead, the minute you get curious and say, oh, I'm going to look ahead a month or two months and see what happens. Then you kind of lose it. You lose this feeling that you've gone back in time. And that's what I'm trying to, I'm personally trying to maintain that uh, because that's what really makes it personally exciting. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to ask sort of an open-ended question to you. And for from your personal standpoint of writing and following these rules. Now the Mets, you obviously, you, you were nine years old, you were probably just getting into sports and following it. And those were your heroes. And you knew, you knew how that scenario is going to play out just like you said, said earlier, but maybe perhaps like the Jim Brown or the secretariat examples where you really don't remember, or maybe just never, you weren't old enough to appreciate what happened. And you're following that almost like it's happening in real time. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could uh, explain what are some of your, your personal perks that you get from from each of those examples well especially the ones that i never knew anything about those those are the ones that are really special every time i come across a story that i knew nothing about you know it 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 is it it is almost like it's happening now because if you don't know what happened then you know then then it really makes it exciting I, i think the the story i told uh when i was on uh the pigskin dispatch about the 1932 colgate team that that was just stunning to find out that there was a team that went unscored, unbeaten, and unscored upon for a whole season. It is just unbelievable, and uh, right. I, I, uh, you know, I still can't believe that happened. And and well, like with Secretariat, I remember Secretariat winning the Triple Crown, but I didn't know anything about the Whitney Stakes two months later, and so that was that was really stunning. When I uh, in my article, uh, I actually have the video of the Whitney stakes from 50 years ago last weekend. And until I was watching it, I didn't know that secretariat doesn't win the race. And so, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're watching it's, it's, it has a feeling like you're watching it live. So, so the, the things you don't know that you find out about that you never knew about that you find out about that, that's, you know, that's one thing that makes it interesting. And I'll tell you another thing that's really interesting about this whole experience here is, it's kind of a shame that today in sports, sports is kind of cluttered uh, by the fact that it's become so commercial and the athletes are making so much money and athletes are moving back and forth across teams. Um, there was something uh, special about sports back in the 1970s. You know, like that Mets team, one of the reasons I felt like they were my team, like they were part of my identity, was I grew up with these players. And it was the same players for the most part, year after year, there was a core group of players on that 73 team that had been on the 69 team. And so the whole time I was a fan of the Mets, those core players were always there. Now, you know, a lot of teams, there's almost a hundred percent turnover in the personnel in four years. So it's hard to have the same allegiance uh, to a team, um, as you know, now, as, as you did back then. Yeah. Okay. And, and something else, uh, you, you just spawned another uh, question out of me. Okay. With the secretariat. Now we did a, a story, we had the, uh, award-winning author and I apologize. His name escapes me right now. He wrote a book on the Tricot family of, uh, 
of people that rode, rode on the horses and Ron Turcotte, of course, rode secretariat through his triple crown when it was, was uh, Ron Turcotte, the jockey in yes. the, those, both those losses too. Yes. Yeah. He's he? in, okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he was the only one who rode secretariat in 1973. Okay. That's, that's what I thought it was, but I thought maybe, maybe there was something cause I wasn't familiar with him losing the, that either, but uh, maybe that was the magic uh, bullet that uh, somebody else wrote him. Okay. That, that and was, it, is that, was that Raymond Wolf that you, uh, who wrote he he wrote a book about secretariat no no this is this is on the tricot family the the whole oh, okay all all the brothers of the tricots uh you know really focused on ron tricot of course but you know he had some brothers that had some great success in canadian racing and coming down in the states and racing as well but a uh, very very good book and uh i have to look that up we had it on jersey dispatch and it's it's been a while and i, I talked to so many people I, his name escapes me right at the moment um there- I was going to say the reason I was mentioning Raymond Wolf, who, who wrote a great book about Secretariat, is that uh, his daughter has become a uh, one of my subscribers and uh, and has got, given me some great feedback. So that's a real honor. No, absolutely. Well, well, why don't we take this opportunity, Len? Why don't you go ahead, go ahead again, and tell us where people can uh, find your posts and uh, find your podcast app. So the easiest way to find me is to go to www thesportstimetraveler.com and uh, and actually by the middle of this week uh, I will also have the URL www.sportstimetraveler.com so thesportstimetraveler.com or sportstimetraveler.com they'll both take you to the same website and on my website there's information about what I do and there's links to, to go to see all my articles and podcasts so my my articles and podcasts are actually hosted on Substack. Substack is a platform that a lot of uh, professional writers and sports writers are using uh, for blogs and podcasts. So, so that's where they're actually hosted. Um, but the URL to get there is is uh, hard to remember. So that's why I set up this splash page, thesportstimetraveler.com or sportstimetraveler.com. Okay, very good. Len Furman, the sports time traveler, we thank you once again for sharing this great story in sports history, the 73 Mets. And uh, we look forward to some of your other works that you have coming out. And uh, we'll have you on again to talk about some of those in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Darren. It was a pleasure. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.